Everything's just fine in the greenhouse, until it's not. The cannabis plant is highly adaptive, but she also tells you right away if growing conditions are slipping and she's not feeling so well. Being able to read the condition of the plants and then correlate that to what is happening in the growing environment takes some serious experience. Professional growers are finely tuned to sense the changes in the growing environment so they can adapt. Sometimes, though, you can find yourself in a bad way fast. In times like these, you better have some rescue skills. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. This is the last week to win several packages of Happy Endings Compost Tea Mix and Ocean Bounty Flowering Soil Amendment from Green Bicycles. I use this stuff in my own garden and I love it. In fact, I talked with Green Bicycles founder Patrick Smith about his tea on the YouTube channel recently. Go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. My guest this week is Eric Brandstad. Eric is a longtime cultivator and has become one of, if not the most important voice in cannabis greenhouses. You may remember Eric Brandstad from Shaping Fire episode 13 when he was here to talk about greenhouses and light depth. Eric is the recent founder of Greenhouse Advisory Group after spending over a decade with Forever Flowering Greenhouses. Chances are, if you've attended a cannabis convention in the last five years, you've seen Eric speak about light depth. During episode 13, we focused on the pre-planning and building of your cannabis greenhouse. On this episode, we're going to talk about what to do when greenhouses go bad. Today, we're talking about greenhouse rescue. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, Shango. Thanks for having me. It's always great to have you back, man. You know, I always get such great feedback whenever we do an interview, and I always learn a lot too. So so let's get right to it. You know, let's let's set a context for people who are not really familiar with greenhouses yet and bring them up to speed before we get into the nitty gritty. So what are the attributes of a greenhouse that attracts so much uh, people to growing cannabis? I mean, originally when it was People growing cannabis in Northern California it was to protect from the rains. Uh, outdoor plants would get rained on right before harvest and would actually disrupt that harvest in the sense that it might, you know, uh, contaminate the flowers or do something, create mold and these problems. So the greenhouse was like the shelter to help ensure uh, a successful harvest. Um, and then there's also a lot of people that are now look to cost of production. So when you look at a, a legal business in cannabis, um, you know, the cost of production is really important these days because your cost of production dictates almost if you're going to make any profit or not. Um, it's easy to spend a lot of money to grow cannabis. We've all figured that out. And I think the art now is to see how cheap we can grow it, not to grow it cheap and crappy, but I just mean how can we grow it to not spend a ton of money on nutrients, soil, and all the other things that generally were the norm. And so, um, you know, a lot of people look to the greenhouse as an indoor grow room with the free sun. <laughs> and that's not the best way to look at it, even though that's kind of the first common sense, I guess, thought to say, oh, a greenhouse, I could – 
get rid of my electricity bill or the lighting bill at least and we can use the sun and let's go get a greenhouse type of thing and so if you've primarily come from indoor growing there's a little bit of more of a stumbling block i think than people that have been accustomed to growing outdoors um but you know for the most part a greenhouse also outfits or has the ability to do the light deprivation technique which creates the more you know a photo period so people can get multiple harvests using the sun so there's more advantages to using a greenhouse in cannabis nowadays uh, more than ever compared you know compared to the way it used to be but you have to understand the method to the madness um, or else your cost of production is going to go through the roof or you might not even met, you know, the failure rate's really high. Yeah, right on. And I'm actually really looking forward to going through that list. When you and I talked to set up uh, this interview, the the list of issues that come up when people are inappropriately using their greenhouse is really long. It sounds like it might as well be outdoor. Um, so uh, <laughs> it'll it'll be fun to go through these. Um, so, so now we understand why greenhouses are useful, but let's also give people an idea of how much these things cost. Because I know that there's a whole continuum continuum of cost. So will you give people a general idea of what a company might spend on a greenhouse and just roughly what they're going to get for that kind of money? Yeah, there's, there's, you know, I like to look at greenhouses in three different categories. There's the hoop houses, the traditional, you know, round arch or hoop house for the lack of better words. <laughs> uh, and, uh, they can be fairly affordable from one greenhouse company to another. They're more of the entry-level season extender um, type of greenhouses. And so they also can be in different sizes of metal for the most part or thicknesses. But um, for the most part, hoop houses are the affordable ones. They can be a couple dollars a square foot for the greenhouse. And then you have the gothic-shaped frames, which usually are a little beefier. They have a little bit more of a point to the to the roof than a hoop house. Um, and they generally can handle a little bit more snow. They're a lot of times built with a little bit thicker or bigger metal than a traditional hoop house. And, uh, they can start to jump up into the 19 to $25 a square foot, depending on how big or small you get and how you outfit them. And then when we get into the A-frame category, that's the more commercial looking greenhouses that we see that are gutter connected and, uh, you know, really, um, taller and bigger and wow, you know, like the impressive greenhouses, I guess you could say in the commercial space and the A-frame greenhouses typically handle the most snow loads and wind loads and, and, uh, have more features and abilities than the hoop or the Gothic in most cases. And so those start anywhere from 25 to $35 a square foot for those greenhouses, depending on what you outfit them with. And that can be, you know, the, the, the different, uh, benching systems from automated irrigation, heating, and things like that. The cost of the greenhouse can the price per square foot starts to go up. The more bells and whistles you add to it, and the A-frame really gives you the most options for uh, those bells and whistles. I can imagine that you have seen some jaw-dropping stuff in the last year because you know you've been doing this for a long time, ten plus years, and you've seen you know a lot of kind of you know, <laughs> you know, ghetto, humble, you know, greenhouses yeah. that are going to get blown away and then people getting more professional and then getting multiple professional greenhouses. But with the venture capital coming in and people really throwing their money around trying to solve solutions with it, I'm sure you've seen some really incredibly tricked out greenhouses. 
Yeah, I've been pretty fortunate in that regard, and uh, I'm feeling more and more fortunate all the time. Uh, I mean, now that I'm doing my own thing, I'm actually invited to a lot more places that I hadn't been previously, and so that has also given me the opportunity, you know, honestly to see some greenhouses that I've wanted to see for a long time, but because I was on a different team, so to speak, it wasn't really something that was going to happen and now that's happening and so i'm actually able to see a lot of these things that i've been really wanting to see because i knew that they were you know new designs different you know techniques and things like that and so for me to really be able to advise and do the things that i'm doing now i need to be able to see all of this stuff so i'm i'm really being proactive to to get out there and get into more places that I've been eyeballing for a while, and, and uh, yeah, it's exciting. I just went to one recently in Southern California, and it was definitely a, a state-of-the-art, impressive, impressive facility, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's exciting. Yeah, right on. We might as well go ahead and plug Greenhouse Advisory Group right now, because anybody who's followed you knows that you've been in <clears throat> the greenhouse scene for over a decade, but now you're newly independent, and so you still have all of the you know, more than a decade of experience and know-how, plus being, you know, OG NorCal guy and have mad connections, but you formed Greenhouse Advisory Group and you're working with everybody, all comers, all kinds of, you know, uh, builders and designers and customer side and anybody who wants to uh, leverage your experience. Do I pretty much have the idea right? Correct, yeah. I'm trying to pull everybody together that I can um, to get people what they need as far as access. I mean, a lot of people are going to one manufacturer or one consultant and kind of getting one view, so to speak. And it's good to get a big perspective and do the due diligence to get a few views, um, bids and scenarios in order to really wrap your head around what's going to work or not. Um, for that area, for that particular customer. And a lot of people also, you know, even though a lot of the companies that help outfit these greenhouses, you know, with the fans and um, filtration systems, odor controls and things like that, people also want to talk to the, you know, the main person from those companies, even though, you know, one greenhouse company or um, certain, these companies don't sell direct, um, you know, they all tr typically try to do it through one greenhouse company or something like that. That leaves the customer, you know, only dealing with the sales rep from the greenhouse company and they just get, you know, that information, however it's interpreted or relayed. So I really think it's good to actually connect a lot of the dots. So if somebody has, you know, serious odor control questions, let's talk to the odor control guy. You don't have to necessarily hear it from me. Yeah, right on, right on. And <clears throat> that way, it's, you're kind of making a uh, an all-star team of the top people for their particular areas. So yes, and I have a connection with all these people, so it's not like I'm employing all these people and, and whatnot, but they all are part of this team that we all want to be together on, you know, th them as much as me to get the customers the access they need to the information so that they can make good decisions so that they can vet the consultants and the people that they're working with because at the end of the day you know that like you said the venture capitalists and people are coming in and so who's designing these greenhouses and what what are they basing it off of you know what i mean like 
the, you know, I don't know. There's a couple farms in particular. I won't name any names, but you know, I see their greenhouses and their beautiful state of the art, and they've had a lot of problems in them. And then they're going to build new greenhouses. And so, where do they get the you know base metric for saying, okay, let's do this new design if they have a state of the art facility that's not even doing that great? <laughs> you know, like I mean. Is it really that facility, or is it the growing? Is designing a new state-of-the-art facility going to make it easier? Like, I'm just dying to get into some of these places and ask some of these questions because I feel like it's just going on one person's idea after the other, and it's not necessarily proof. Right, and this is where your whole idea that that you mentioned to me at NCIA of greenhouse rescue, right? So you've hired you've, right. hi you've hired a company and they've built you a box. And they don't really know how the greenhouse works properly for cannabis. And so you're rolling in with your experience and going, no, 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 let me, let me show you how to do this. And so, so let's, let's start before we go into our first commercial break in a little bit. I want to get into a little more meat, um, uh, for the people who have got greenhouses and they've got problems. Um, you and I made a list of a whole bunch of issues that can come up with your greenhouse before the show. And let's start going through those and, and, uh, start knocking them down. The, you know, the one thing, the one problem that I think most anybody in the national cannabis scene has heard you speak on is heat because, oh my gosh, you rail on that. So, so uh, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand you the mic and why don't you start talk, talking about um, heat uh, issues in greenhouses? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I got a DM last night that asked me to come out and talk about how they can make their greenhouse cooler or cool things down because... Um, they have too much heat associated with their greenhouse, and it makes sense because, you know, greenhouses were made for trapping air so that that air will heat up. I mean, greenhouses were invented for winter time, not for summer, and so it's what I say all the time. You're right because a lot of people want to take this contraption and throw it out in the hottest, sunniest place, and. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make sense when you think about it from the angle of, okay, greenhouses were invented for wintertime. If you trap air, it heats up. The first thought is, in my mind, isn't, okay, let's go to Desert Hot Springs and set up, or Death Valley and set up a greenhouse. Like, um, you know, even though people are doing it and you can do it, don't get me wrong, when you don't have those thoughts in your mind, you go to a greenhouse company or you design a greenhouse yourself without those thoughts in your mind and it's easy to create something that's not going to function right or it's going to create more of a hostile environment than what you're already uh, dealing with. And so the greenhouse rescue is a hot topic right now because we have a lot of people that are coming into it imagining what they think they need and uh, you know what they end up having is heat issues all the time it's always heat because we're trapping air and it heats up the other thing that happens is the clearer the cover the more intense the sun is and so we have leaf surface temperatures that go up it's not always just air temperature that increases that's the obvious one but the surface temps increase the metal the ground the soil, the grow bags or the containers, and then the leaves themselves. And when plants heat up, they have to sweat. And when we get sweaty plants, that results in condensation. And condensation what everybody is what everybody's fearful of and definitely doesn't want to get. But and then we go into okay, how do we dehumidify? How do we, you know, mop up this condensation? And the thought isn't back up. Let's figure out how to stop the plants from sweating. First of all, and a lot of times the other default is, okay, put in a cooling system, you know, an HVAC or whatever. And, you know, 
when we start plugging in a ton of things, we're taking the green out of the greenhouse, and we were talking about our cost of production earlier needing to go down, and so we can easily take a greenhouse and start to plug all this stuff in, run all this equipment, and watch our power bill start to go up. And then we go, oh, did this really save us any money in the long run, especially with the increased hostility and failure rate that's happening because we start to see the russet mites and the powdery mildews and the, you know, botrytis and all these, you know, even spider mites in the basic form start to take over. And so we have people that are not growing cannabis as much anymore. I'd like to say they, they're waging war. You know, they're out there spraying, you know, this, I spray that and I spray this. And some people even say I'm in the battle of my life right now to get these root aphids knocked back. I'm in the, you know, huge battle, you know, and it's just like, man, everywhere you go, we're going to this war zone. And uh, it's not it's not as fun as it used to be. People lose their passion really easily. Uh, people get complacent and do, you know. Stupid things, I guess you could say. And well, let's and, uh, let's uh, let's roll it all the way back. Since the beginning of that whole train of thought is the heat, right? And the heat can cause this one problem, and then another, and then another, and they they chain all the way down until you're giving up hope and you've lost morale. You started out by saying that you know the 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 greenhouse was meant to keep the heat in, and it gets too hot. Is it as simple as opening the windows? And are all greenhouses made with opening windows? No. I mean, a lot of people right now, actually, and that's a good point or topic in the sense that there's a couple ways to run a greenhouse for ventilation. There's the passive ventilation, which means opening up side vents and roof vents and doors even. And then there's mechanical ventilation, which means the greenhouse is virtually sealed up. And the only entry point for air is at the intakes at one end of the greenhouse. And then the air travels through the greenhouse and out the exhaust fans the other way. And so you know, when we, you're designing a greenhouse, people often not, you know, forget or just don't bother with the passive ventilation and just do strictly mechanical ventilation because there's this idea to have this controlled environment. If I open up these openings, bugs are going to come in. And, uh, and with mechanical ventilation, you're still exchanging a ton of air. I mean, the outside air is coming in through the greenhouse. And so a lot of people forget the fact that you know opening the roof or the sidewall may be different than turning on the fan but we're still accessing air from the outside it's you know so it's not much different and so yes when you design a greenhouse i like to say design it for flexibility and it may cost more but having passive and mechanical ventilation is important uh, but no opening up the greenhouse alone isn't enough because greenhouse covers will magnify the light they don't just you know transmit the light exactly how it is it actually will magnify the light and create more intensity so what you end up happening is that you can have a passively ventilated greenhouse and still have a high leaf surface temperature and and as example of that is that i was in santa barbara county where it's near the coast pretty temperate climate um, but I was in a big 50,000-square-foot wooden greenhouse. wasn't fancy state-of-the-art. It had a fairly clear film on it. They're frosted films, they, so they don't completely clear like glass, but they still transmit quite a bit of light. 
and it was 75 degrees inside the greenhouse so it was fine you know the air temperature was fine but with using my infrared thermometer i shot the leaf surface of these plants that were you know probably teens they were small plants it was a nursery and the leaf surface temperature was already 94 degrees and so that's a pretty big swing from having an 80, a 75 degree air temperature to a 94 degree leaf surface temperature. We know at that point the plants are heating up and they're needing to transpire or sweat to keep themselves cool. They're using that water not for photosynthetic availability but for survival at that point. And so, of course, the greenhouse is feeling more humid. You know, they're wanting to pull shade cloth to try to calm down the sun's intensity. And so it's not just air temperature that – well, air temperature is what everybody's trying to fight or battle or deal with to mitigate all these surface temps. And you don't have to do it that way. I can actually uh, – or we uh, – the, the stuff that I've done over the course of my – uh, history of greenhouses is using actually a diffused greenhouse cover that spreads the light uniformly and scatters infrared and it actually helps lower the leaf surface temperature almost like if you were using shade cloth uh, but shade cloth restricts the light and we're trying to get as much light as possible to grow cannabis that's always super important for cannabis growers is to get more light you know they don't want any shade shadowing or anything like that and so to get more light, the obvious thing is to try to get clearer materials, but then they put out a shade cloth to restrict the light when it gets too hot. So, you know, it's kind of this chasing the tail syndrome that I see going on. And so by using a properly diffused greenhouse cover, we usually don't have to use shade cloth because the diffused cover actually mimics or acts almost like a shade cloth would in the sense that it is diffusing the light, but in a sense it's creating more light particles rather than restricting them because, um, of the, the diffusion properties in that greenhouse cover. And so what I found over the course of time that it's much easier to support the plants and cool them down with the process of using diffuse covers, passive ventilation, circulation fans, we actually get the plant temperature down rather than the air temperature because at the end of the day, using uh, certain equipment wet walls and things like that to cool a greenhouse to actually get it down to that temperature doesn't always happen the air conditioning or wet wall cooling systems in greenhouses sometimes depending on where you are and the humidity the relative humidity outside you don't get a temperature drop and if you do sometimes it's only 10 degrees so if it's a 100 degree day getting it down to 90 degrees in the greenhouse doesn't really help anybody that much and it's terribly humid inside i remember so, i remember back in 2015 or so um you got your hands on one of these infrared temperature gauges and mm -hmm. uh, it was funny as hell man because like i remember watching you in social media you're like live streaming this or that and like you're just walking around greenhouses and you're just like pointing at stuff and and it was funny because those of us who were watching our minds were being blown at seeing for example hey this room is 75 and oh look this you know this this piece of metal <laughs> or whatever is is you know 102 or something and something and there are these, these huge swings and 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 those of us who are watching were watching you blow your own mind while you were blowing our minds and then from that on forward you were all about the the diffuser film and and so will the diffuser film um, solve the problem with the overheating flat surfaces in a greenhouse uh, just like it does uh, solve the problem on the leaf? It does help. I mean, um, 
Um, the leaf actually does the most, or the plant, because it's made of water. It's pooling water from its roots up through its system. It's like a radiator almost, you know. Um, plants are, you know, like we pump blood through our veins and our system. Water is pumping through those plants. Um, and so the way I like to look at it is it's easier to cool the plants um, than it is to cool the air to do the same thing. And so the surfaces actually aren't as easy to cool like the plants are because they're not made of water. But what happens is, is people use the wrong colors in the greenhouse. And so the other thing I learned with that infrared thermometer or the laser shooter deal is that, you know, black surfaces and darker surfaces will heat up more than lighter colored surfaces and it's really easy to go to the gardening store and grab some ground cover that's on the shelves at home depot or you know wherever and it's usually black weed block and most of the containers that we grow in you know historically have always been black um i know that now we're into the new era with the 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 reusable grow bags and in the soft containers you know things the fabric pots and things and they, now they're making those in tan colors and white colors because what i found out over the course of time is that black stores energy it doesn't just generate it or attract it it actually will store it um and so what it, what that means is when it gets cool at nighttime you can touch the ground cover or the grow bags and you can still feel the heat um and so that's not a good thing when we're you know, using those containers out in the hot sun, whether we're outdoor or in a greenhouse, th that surface is going to greatly increase um, compared to tan or white. And so same with the ground cover. We see a lot of people using the white ground cover. That's one of the things that, you know, I was it was really important to me to find white ground cover because the black just wasn't an option. And, uh, you know, I tried to coin two different modes, though. There's winter mode and summer mode. So those of you that are using greenhouses in the wintertime, and you should be, um, yeah, you, you can switch to the darker colors to encourage more free heat in the wintertime. You know, it's not going to make a lot, and it's not going to save the garden, so to speak. But like I always say, every degree counts. And if we can create another degree or two for free or easy, or we can decrease another degree or two um, for free by using these colors in conjunction with the right season, then we're actually trying to do our best in practices and support of the plant. Uh, because again, everybody's in a lot of cases battling bugs and battling things, but also the battle for this heat, you know, battling the heat is another... You know, it's just war out there sometimes when you look at what people <laughs> – and it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't at all. I mean, these are simple methods that work really well. We've, you know, tried and tested it over the course of many years. And so um, I see a lot of benefit in people using these things. And you can get not just uh, uh, diffused polywoven films or polywoven plastics you can get diffused polycarbonates you can get diffused glass now so it's not you know it's not that you can't you got to get the cheap stuff or you got to get the films and somebody goes well i use the rigid polycarbonates and that wouldn't work for me you can get a diffused whatever you just have to go around and talk to the right people and understand the product but again most greenhouse companies for the most part didn't get into cannabis they've been a greenhouse company for already a long time and so all of their knowledge and information and their you know their business is set around creating a greenhouse that's optimal for winter time 
And then you have cannabis growers that show up and go, well, I'm going to use it primarily in the summertime. And they go, oh, well, okay, yeah, like <laughs> use a, you know, use a wet wall or something. And those don't work everywhere. One of the things that I find interesting is how, you know, you mentioned your summer mode and your winter mode that you coined and that, you know, some folks, when they're thinking about keeping prices or costs down, they don't like the idea of swapping out their their ground cover from black to white or swapping out their fabric pots. And they're all like, oh, well, that's just wasting money. The thing is, though, it's not like the old days when, when people would have four or five grow locations and two or three would get busted, leaving you with two or three. And, and so you had, to, you had to make everything severable, right? You know, nowadays we're talking about legal grows that are scaled for commercial production. And that difference of one or two degrees could be a huge difference depending on where you live. Because if you live somewhere that's hot as hell and you're trying to bring down the temperature, those two degrees, well, that you're going to spend way more on air conditioning that you're going to, then you're going to pay on swapping out some of these seasonal parts, right? And the same thing, the difference, if you're trying to increase your temperature in a cool area, well, switching everything to black's going to help you there. I think that people are still getting used to the ideas that at scale, even a degree or two is worth a lot of money. It's it's huge. It it really is, and I people are starting to wrap that around their minds right now because you know whatever we can do, in in some cases, let's say for free. You know, if you already have the containers and the two things, you're just swapping them out. Like people are already used to historically buying new stuff every year you know people throw away their depth tarps and get a new one uh uh, throw out their soil get new soil like all these things are kind of over with people are trying to figure out how to save their soil people are you know making use of you know refurbishing things and i don't mean um you know just the craft growers i mean people all the way up to the acre couple acre greenhouses that are in these santa barbara county monterey county and things like that it's like we need to make do with what we got and make it work and try to make you know a business out of this because one of the other things i see in the greenhouse rescue side of it is is people spending way too much money fixing something up that they could have just gone in and planted and made a couple rounds out of it and then use some of that money to to fix things up yeah totally prove their prove that their systems are working before they go spend even more money totally well i mean you don't have to have a state-of-the-art facility to grow some some dank cannabis you just got to go grow it really and so even if you have a dilapidated piece of shit wooden greenhouse uh from the cut flower era in santa barbara or carpenter or in uh, monterey county I mean, I see a lot of people go way over and above fixing these things up where if it was me, I'd put in some hoops with the, you know, with the roofs caving in and everything and just uh, pull some tarps like, you know, basically old school. (laughs) Yeah. Inside. You know what I mean? And then they go fix all these things up and spend so much countless money. And there's no I don't know where people get their their metric for saying, okay, this is what we got to do or we got to fix it up to this point. Like they just go until they run out of money and then they have to 
pack it up and another company moves into that same space and they try a shot at it and and a lot of times these people don't grow anything they keep fixing and fixing and fixing until they run out of money and it's just like i'd do the opposite i'd be growing 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 and then fix shit up later <laughs> there you go there you go that way you're making money as you go so so um so after the break we're gonna go ahead and talk about some more issues like pests and mold but i wanted to get heat out of the way because that's like clearly the big gorilla in the room so we're gonna go ahead and take our first short ba- short break and be right back you're listening to Shaping Fire. My guest today is cannabis greenhouse expert Eric Brandstad from Greenhouse Advisory Group. Living soil and regenerative cannabis agriculture are surging in popularity, and to implement these biological solutions, real science education is vital. If you are interested in all things probiotic growing, you will probably want to attend the upcoming Science of Organic Regenerative Cannabis Cultivation Conference. Joshua Rutherford of Dutch Blooms has lined up an incredible array of educators for the traveling event. The teaching staff includes Leighton Morrison and Elaine Ingham on soil biology, Chris Trump talking Korean natural farming, Kevin Jodry on cannabis genetics, Kelly and Josh from Dragonfly Earth Medicine, Suzanne Wainwright, the bug lady, Dr. Robert Faust on natural biostimulants, Stephen Raisner on aquaponics, and Chip Osborne on soil testing, and even more folks will be there. There will be a grower panel, a breeding panel, and a DEM-certified farmers panel. Joshua has even built in significant informal time for you with the teachers as well. The teaching staff is just as excited to work with you as you are about attending. And there's no advertising at the event, no vendor booths. Your tuition is what is paying the staff, so they will all be very present and attentive to you, not a corporate sponsor. Even better, the conference is not just for folks on the West Coast. Humboldt, California is hosting one event for sure, but the show is going on the road to Vancouver, British Columbia, Portland, Maine, and Ann Arbor, Michigan. Get out your pen now because I'm about to give you the website. This is a fabulous opportunity for you to hear from an array of nationally recognized top-shelf soil educators all in one place. Not only that, this isn't just beginner stuff like you get at most conventions. This is an intensive for people like us who totally nerd out on the rhizosphere. The website is regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. That's regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. You can also find a link on the Shaping Fire Instagram and newsletter. Cut through all the misinformation out there and don't miss this opportunity to learn real soil science. As a listener of Shaping Fire, you already understand the importance of living soil when growing cannabis. When you have active microbe communities in your substrate, you go way beyond simply fertilizing with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Having active microorganisms in your substrate supports vigorous plant growth throughout the plant's root zone, making for higher yields and thriving flowers. Mammoth pea is the first organically derived microbial inoculant that focuses on your plant's nutrient cycling processes to release soil phosphorus and other micronutrients from their bound forms, making them more available to the plant. Increased levels of phosphorus will also keep inner nodes shorter and focus your plant's energy on bud production. Not only that, but the microbes act as a defense shield for the plant's rhizosphere by outcompeting potentially harmful pathogenic microbes. Pretty cool, right? Mammoth pea not only unlocks the nutrients in your soil, but it also helps protect your plant from disease. Mammoth pea's beneficial bacteria act like microbioreactors, continually producing enzymes that release nutrients. Mammoth pea was developed at a U.S. university and has been extensively tested by Colorado growers and independent laboratories. Mammoth pea is proven to increase growth and enhance blooming. 
One of the great things about supplementing with microorganisms is that they won't compete with whatever fertilizer program you're already running. Simply dose on top of your fertilizer schedule for increased benefits. To learn more and to find out where you can buy Mammoth Pea near you, check out their website at www.mammothmicrobes.com. Partner with microorganisms to create beautiful, thriving cannabis. Mammoth Pea. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los. And our guest this week is cannabis greenhouse expert, Eric Brandstad from Greenhouse Advisory Group. So Eric, uh, during the first set, we hit heat really hard because there is no doubt that seems to be the, the, the gorilla in the room that everybody's dealing with. But I know that you talk a lot with your clients about pests, right? Because as you talked about during the first set, you know, if you want to do some passive ventilation and open the damn windows, a lot of people are like, no, we don't want to do that because we need to have a closed, sterile environment because we don't want to attract pests. Also, we've got the opposite problem where if you already have, say, for example, a two-spot spider mite in the greenhouse and the temperatures go up, well, suddenly now you've created this awesome breeding ground for the little bastards. So, you know, when it comes to pests, what kind of advice do you give your clients on how best to manage and even maybe uh, design build their greenhouses? Oh, that's a good question. And I actually have been working on in the last month on this pretty heavily you know, with myself and a couple other people, because uh, I'm bouncing some ideas off of them uh, to get where I'm trying to go with that. But basically, yeah, in a nutshell, everybody comes across pests or deals with pests. I mean, people are getting, um, you know, pests or spider mites at minimum from the nursery that they get their clones from. And, uh, you know, when, it, when I, we talk about sealed environments versus passive and things like that, I've been to many, many sealed, secure, tight ship indoor rooms that don't take any air from outside unless it's filtered and all these crazy things. And, and they deal with pests, too. So, I mean, pests can get wherever they want to go in the long run. And the way I look at it is that... Pests are looking for invitations to a party. They're not just flying by going, oh, this is green and I'm going to land here and this is the plant, you know, I'm going to set up shop. There has to actually be conditions that host that specific bug or pathogen. And so, you know, yeah, molds can be flying around in the room and or in the air or in the world for that matter, but they don't necessarily just go get on a cannabis plant because it's cannabis and it happens to be there. It's a little bit more detailed than that. And two things that we got to pay attention to um, are, are the environments. And why I say two, there's two environments to look at. There's the environment up above, which is the the air and the you know, like we talked about, the temperature and humidity and things like that. And then there's also the environment underground. And so, you know, that's not necessarily my specialty, but I have been working more and more with soil people because I'm seeing the fact that we can fix the environment all we want. But if people actually have, you know, the up, up above environment, we can fix that all we want and get the air movement and get things right, take the hostility away. But if we have really bad soil conditions, um, whatever environment I help fix isn't going to change the problem. And so it's kind of a two-part thing, and that's why with the Greenhouse Advisory Group, I'm kind of pulling together a few of these different resources or, or professionals in these areas because it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, um, 
it's I can't just do it by myself. I don't know enough to do it all by myself. It almost sounds like biodynamic growing, you know, where you are considerate. You're you're thinking about nature holistically outdoors with biodynamic growing, but you're all like, no, we need to take that same holistic mindset and bring it into the greenhouse. And and it's the it's the soil and it's the diffusion film on the roof and it's whether what kind of glass we're choosing. It's a whole system that works together, so you damn well better plan it in advance you've got to and and we can't just go to a, one greenhouse company or another and let them necessarily give us the advice if they haven't had any cannabis background behind them and if they do have cannabis background it's good to ask where it's from and what i mean by that is that cannabis went legal in colorado before everybody else for the you know, for the most part, um, as far as recreational. And so what that meant was an explosion of greenhouses in Pueblo. Um, and Pueblo happens to be the high desert of, of Colorado. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's high elevations. There's not a lot growing out there and, uh, they made it, uh, okay for cannabis. And so what happened was, is there's a local greenhouse company in Colorado, a, a very reputable one. And so a lot of people naturally wanted to buy local, you know, I'm a Colorado cannabis business. I'm gonna buy greenhouses from this Colorado cannabis greenhouse company. And so that greenhouse company did sell a lot of greenhouses to the cannabis space in Pueblo, Colorado, but that same the data that they created even out of those greenhouses isn't the same that's going to be produced out of a greenhouse in Washington or Oregon, for that matter, um, even upstate New York. And so that greenhouse company went around applying the same, you know, t designs to greenhouses in other states than, than the high desert of Pueblo, Colorado. And then we started seeing increased hostility and failure rates associated with that because it's not just you know do what we do in pueblo over here in in upstate new york or you know out in the islands of washington like you guys are you just can't do the same thing the high deserts are really hot and dry as a bone so you can actually use fogging systems and wet walls and things to you know do the things that i normally um, don't spend a lot of time talking about because most of the people that I've dealt with in cannabis have always come from this already kind of humid area where it gets hot, like, you know, in these forests and, and places and the, you know, and it does get hot and dry. Don't get me wrong for maybe a month or so. But, um, like I said, there's still ways to deal with all that and not just try to get this push button. Okay. I'm going to set my parameters like an indoor room and, and here we go. And so the bugs really enjoy these hot, hostile in areas so that some of the pathogens and they also love it underground when people are you know throwing all these things into the soil there's also people that are fighting root aphids so they dump all this other you know root aphid stuff into the soil that actually disrupts the other microorganisms um, and so you know it's just kind of a you know a, a lot of people chasing the tail trying to fix one problem creating another and a lot of times, like I said, we got to back up and really, you know, figure out our environments and figure out underground environments, what's going on and try to get these two things in harmony so that we can actually grow stuff that isn't susceptible or sending out vectors for pests and disease. I always call it sending out invitations to the party. You know what I mean? Like, you know, cannabis grows, you can, you know, plants will send out messages to let 
bugs and pathogens know that you know there is a party going on and we're open for business <laughs> so so how about when we were talking about ventilation earlier yeah you were talking about the folks who were concerned about opening the windows because they open the window for pests and you know i hear that all the time so what do you say to those people do you say listen even the sterile grows have got you know, spider mites. So don't worry about them coming in the window. It's more important to get the, the, the ventilation or, you know, what, what do you actually tell your clients when, when they're trying to make that decision to open the window or not? Well, I, I actually have pictures and stuff that shows the differences of plants being uh, overheated and going through nutrient lockout versus ones next to it in a in a diffused. I've got people that have pictures that have you know plants that are covered in spider mites next to plants that are completely healthy that you know don't have any spider mites. You know, it's really hard to get across that message, but most people that I talk to are have heard some of this before. You know, the healthier the plant, the more resistant it is to bugs and disease i mean that's a common statement in a lot of horticulture not just cannabis and it goes the same with people you know if we're healthy we typically can fight off sicknesses and diseases easier than people that you know choose to not be healthy and so um you know it kind of goes back to the trade shows and the things where you and i've met over the course of the years if you look at the trade shows yeah they're turning real techie right now for dispensaries and track and trace and you know, banking and all that kind of stuff. But historically, they've always had a lot of the band-aids, like how to clean the air, the new spray for this disease, the new, you know, root drench to kill this disease, the new purifier to fight this disease. Everything is this battle, you know, band-aid thing. And nobody's really looking back and saying, okay, how can we change the band-aid syndrome and get to the health of things you know it's almost like big pharma some of us choose to try to eat organic food and get healthy and other people choose to go to the doctor and get a pill yeah you know and so you know i what, like to what, look at go ahead a holistic sorry. way yeah no, right. and you know i gotta tell you you know i've i've interviewed a few a handful of times and you and i are personal friends and i've talked to you and i've never heard you talk this much about soil science right you know right. it's like 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 and and you know i've really gotten into soil and uh, and canf uh, korean natural farming and you know this idea that that's that sick plants put out that invitation for bugs and it's not whether or not you have the window open at all, because if you've got healthy plants, even if the window's open, it's not going to create a home for bugs because there's no invitation. You know, that's some, that's some radical stuff, right? Because I've heard you talk yeah. about the pest solutions via, you know, mechanization of the greenhouse or different things that you can do with the building. But I can, I can feel that you've moved beyond that. You're like, listen, the solution to the pests is not in the greenhouse design necessarily. It's actually in the holistic design of the entire greenhouse. And so you better damn well talk to your soil expert. Exactly. And what's happening, though, and I found out through working with, you know, a, a soil person in particular, my buddy Scott, is that, you know, he found anomalies in greenhouses and in even indoor rooms that exchange air kind of like greenhouses. And I started seeing some of the same things, but I didn't really know what I was seeing. I knew that I was kind of 
I guess visualizing this happening, but I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have the microscope and the data to actually go, oh my gosh, this is, you know, solid. We figured it out. You know, this is it type of, type of attitude. And so my confidence level in some ways has gone up to talk about this stuff because I found that these correlations are these things that were, you know, at the tip of my fingers are actually, you know, in full grasp now. And what that's what's happening is that yeah you can create conditions in the greenhouse that change the biology in the soil so a new tool that i carry around besides my infrared thermometer is i like to carry around a six inch soil probe for checking the soil temperature and a lot of times we find that the soil temperatures increase or decrease um, and sometimes a higher soil temperature will create more of a hostile environment for pathogens, bugs, and things to grow or to help create these vectors like I talked about. And so, you know, thrips, a lot of people have a problem with thrips, and thrips like to lay their eggs where the the babies, when they hatch, have something to eat. And what do they eat? They eat bacteria. And so when we have an over-bacteria frenzy or a high-nitrogen-fixed soil, we easily get the thrips. And so, you know, looking at all these things, you know, we can make slight changes. And some of those changes have to do with the air movement. If we have a sealed greenhouse that's doing mechanical ventilation and we have air coming in at one end of the greenhouse that's cooler than the air going out, because, again, you got to remember National Greenhouse Manufacturing Association standards say you got to have one air exchange per minute in a greenhouse. So that's a ton of air moving in and moving out of wow. a greenhouse. Yeah. And that, so, what? That's crazy. One exchange a minute. Yeah. So if you think Whew. about that, that's a standard that's recommended. It's not for cannabis. That's for the greenhouse world. And so we're moving a high volume of air. And the reason is, is because as the air travels through the greenhouse, it heats up. And so when you Think about a long, long greenhouse. We have air coming in at one end, heating up and exiting a different temperature um, than when it came in. So I've had reports of people saying that they had air temperatures coming in the greenhouse at 75 degrees and exiting at 130. Wow. All, and so that, that air is getting heated up in under a minute. Under a minute, and in some cases, if people don't have their calculations right, maybe that they're not exchanging at one time a minute, so they do have solar gain in that regard, so they didn't do their calcs right, and uh, they don't have one air exchange per minute. Um, maybe the greenhouse is super long. If we go over 144 feet, we really see a problem with uh, air having a chance to heat up because of those long lengths. And the main thing that you know, my buddy Scott pointed out was that and I saw this too in a couple of the classes I was teaching at Oaksterdam um, that the the plants at one end of the greenhouse or the other would be more healthy than the 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 rest of the whole run. And so what I found in a couple of classes is with the plants closest to the entry point of that cooler, fresher air um, weren't doing actually as good as the plants at the other end where the 130 air degree degree air was exiting. And why is because they were overwatering, and so plants closer to that cool intake air don't use as much water as the plants at the other end where the heat is. And so you might think the opposite and say, oh, the plants at the end where the cooler air would be the healthier ones versus the one at the other end, and it's the opposite because the soil is able to dry out, and those plants, even though it's warmer air at that end, the, the soil dries out faster because the other end of the, where the air is coming in, the soil's waterlogged. <laughs> it's not using any water so the biology is 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 
it's turning into water molds and yeah. creating. But the, only, but only at the one end. <laughs> well, actually, ninety percent of the greenhouse. Oh. So they overwater the whole greenhouse, and the plants that did the best were where it was the air was exiting. So, like, you know, a third of the greenhouse was doing good at the other end, where it was mostly, I would think, a little bit hostile. But when you look at the leaf surface temperature, they were moving so much air through there, and plants are made of water. It's just like me and you. If we stand in front of a fan when I'm hot and sweaty, or if I stand in a cool breeze provided by Mother Nature, my body starts to cool down. The sweat starts to dry, and you know I'm evaporative that way. And so plants are the same way. And so even though the air temp might have been 130 exiting, that doesn't mean the leaf surface temperature was that high. And so therefore, that plant was actually doing pretty dang good considering – uh, what it was going through and and the fact that it, the rest of its family in that bed was being overwatered. Before we go on to our next uh, greenhouse challenge, you've mentioned Scott like three times. Let's go ahead and plug Scott because I don't I don't <laughs> I don't personally know Scott, but uh, I'm assuming we're talking about Scott La Granola on Instagram. I don't actually know what his real uh, last <laughs> name is, but but I follow him and I think he follows me. But but go ahead and go ahead and plug him a sec so that so that people who are into soil can be start following him. Yeah, so um, Scottola Granola is is how you say it or how you look it up on Instagram. I mean, he has a business one, but he doesn't use it very often, and his company is called Crescive Soil Services. And so Scottola Granola um, happens to be somebody that called me years ago when I was working um, answering phones at the last job I had, and so he called me gosh, I want to say like 2013 or something like that. And he was actually calling me to inquire about dragonfly earth medicine. And, you know, he was actually asking me some questions about soil and some things. And I had done some work with one of Elaine Ingham's advisors um, during that time on a walnut orchard of my family's down near Stockton. And so we were trying to add biology to an organic my dad turned organic all of a sudden on one of his 40-acre farms, and so we wanted to go in and add some biology after its many years of Roundup use. So I was involved in doing that, and when I was out there, we were spraying compost tea on everything when it really needed to be watered in. And so when Scott called me, he talked about spraying compost tea on an alfalfa field or something like that, and I said, no, you got to water it in. And you know, use the dragonfly that way or whatever. And then I mentioned Elaine Ingham's name and he followed her. And next thing you know, he took all of her courses, done all this stuff. And he became one of her advisors. And she has like 11 people that have taken the full course and get the advisor status or whatever. But he's the only one that did cannabis out of all those 11 advisors. And so he created data that I believe that, you know, blows even Elaine's information away because she started something that, you know, she taught people and he's one of these prodigy types that took it to the next level. And so I, I can't say enough good things about the stuff that he's learned and he's teaching and the, the, the information that he has about soil pests and cannabis. And it's kind of gone hand in hand with my work because a lot of the work he's done has been in greenhouses. So then, you know, here we are working together on some of this stuff. And so we are doing a lot of uh, farm rescue work or greenhouse rescue, so to speak, work together. Um, coincidentally, you know, it wasn't even like 
it just kind of just started happening that way. Right on. So, any, so, so that was actually a whole bunch of really quality name drops in one response. So, so everybody who's <laughs> listening, you're recommended to go uh, follow Scott on Instagram, but also Elaine Ingham was, uh, was name checked and Elaine is fantastic. And then also you mentioned uh, Josh and Kelly at Dragonfly Earth Medicine who are, you know, kind of heroes of mine. And so if you're not following Dragonfly Earth Medicine, go check them out as well. All right. So moving forward, let's talk about inadequate size, man, because a lot of people, they're, 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 they're either moving from multiple smaller grows into one finally commercial grow, or you've got people who are setting up a commercial grow and they, they're, you know, they're not experienced in cannabis. And so they don't know how to come up with the appropriate size to build. And so then now you've got a company that's trying to, you know, make their millions in too small of a location. So how do you think through that with clients of yours of how big they want to go? I mean, you just mentioned a hundred and more than 144, feet long and you start running into all sorts of airflow issues there's got to be a short checklist of that stuff that you've got definitely have a checklist i mean the main thing is to see what kind of license people are having because in california you can get certain square footage licenses and so you know at first people are going for this size license and so based on that size license they can do x number of square feet of flowering and some people are also you know, now stacking licenses. So it kind of turns into this, like, you know, let's build it as we go. Or it, you know, some people just get what they can get. So, I mean, there are a ton of greenhouses that are going up for sale and for lease. And so it's real popular to go find something that's already built and, you know, fix it up or do what you want with it. And then there's also a lot of the new construction. And so people are, yes, having to design their own greenhouse. And so, you know, designing the greenhouse, in my opinion, is definitely an important part of that. And it's not just necessarily how many fans and where we put them and, you know, the obvious calculations and things like that, but it's also the workflow strategies of being able to have small plants, um, bringing in, you know, plants for transplanting, being able to harvest plants, processing, all these things have to go on within this facility. And I've feel like a lot of that stuff isn't looked at close enough when we just look at okay how are we going to grow let's grow this stuff and how much can we pump out and we'll dry it over here and trim it over here and uh it causes a lot of cross-contamination that way yeah that makes a lot of sense you know since um you know, because of the time of year it is right now, you see on a lot of people's Instagram feeds, folks who are outgrowing their hoops, right? <laughs> and it's, and it's, and you yeah. know, it's sad funny, right? Cause like we, we, we would never wish on anybody the fact that their plants have grown so much that they're touching the plastic, which, you know, touches the condensation, which creates vectors mm. for mold, right? So we all know yeah. not to do that, but we also know that if you let your, you know, if you set up your depths wrong or, or if your, your full term stuff is it moves too fast um suddenly you're, you've outgrown and so you see a lot of people this time of year uh putting like extenders on the bottom of their their plastic right Not, yeah things. thank you on the bottom yeah. of the hoops to, to to buy themselves another 18 inches or whatever right and um and you know obviously with a professionally built greenhouse that's a hell of a lot more difficult to potentially impossible. Are there any tricks of the trade for, for fitting more into a, a solid greenhouse like there is for hoops or, or are you just stuck? 
Well, I mean, in some cases, you know, canopy management is definitely an art into itself, and, and it's something that people are learning to work on. I mean, historically, when we had, you know, legal cannabis in California anyway, it was all plant counts. You know, you didn't grow over 99 plants, or certain counties let you grow 25. They kind of you know, ran everything by plant count. And so that meant let's grow the biggest possible plant we can grow because that's how we're going to, you know, get all these pounds of, of, of herb. And so with plant counts, yeah, people were pushing limits and growing massive plants, definitely hitting the roof or taking the cover off. You know, like you've probably seen when your travels up north, some people grow some monster outdoor plants. I mean, that, you know, it's pretty pretty impressive to see how big some of those outdoor plants can get and so you know we've changed the model now to square footage licenses in this legal area and so what happens with that is that people want to grow more plants but not quite as big and so we we kind of have a new learning curve in some cases you know we're we're all kind of getting our feet wet and growing more plants and you know being able to scale up like you've been talking about to have the veg space to be able to put plants into this flowering space. And so, you know, I see a lot of people that, yeah, take the cover of their greenhouse off and the plants go bananas and they end up using the hoop as as trellis and things like that. And what I look at that as is a lot of people didn't want to go greenhouse because it trapped too much air and they found that growing outdoor was much easier. They didn't get the bugs. They didn't have the condensation that created the mold and all these things. But nine times out of 10, what it was, was they were trapping too much air using too clear of a cover. And yeah, the plants got way too big for any airflow to happen anyway. And so ripping the cover off alleviated all those issues but if we backed up and were able to educate people on the fact that you know you got to have the ventilation sorted out the proper greenhouse cover and don't let your plants get quite as big you're actually going to get better results at the end of the day and what i mean by better results is that we've had a lot of this stuff tested over the course of time and uh, what we found is higher cannabinoids and higher terpene profiles in stuff that's been supported through these greenhouse techniques um, and compared to outdoor or indoor. And so there's two different labs that have been uh, saying this stuff for a little bit. And there's actually a terpene company that prefers to get greenhouse material because they usually get more terps out of it than they would outdoor or indoor. Hmm. That's really interesting. All right, so I've got one more question for you before we go to our next commercial, and then this is totally a non sequitur. So, so I was down in Phoenix doing a keynote at an Indo. No, it wasn't Indo Expo. What was it? Um, uh, oh, it was Imperius Expo. Um, easy confusion. So anyway, yeah, I, was yeah. down, I was down there for for to Phoenix, and I'm talking to all these folks who are doing greenhouses out in the desert, right? And you know, like you were talking about during first set, you wouldn't naturally think of greenhouses in the desert because it's already hot, and normally greenhouses were to keep things warm, right? To keep the air warm. And so all these people were talking about they're they're using the greenhouse for the light, but then they're also spending all this money on air conditioning to keep it cool. And I was on the flight home and I got to thinking, I'm like, well, you know, if it was me and I was doing this, I'd be really tempted to dig a big hole in the ground and and grow the plants below grade 
and then just put a glass roof on the top of that hole uh, so that I could use the geothermal cooling and yet still use the hot sunshine. Have you ever heard of that before? Is that even a thing? Is that possible? Uh, I mean, it's definitely a thing, and there are possibilities. I mean, you know, name-dropping again, our friends at Dragonfly Earth Medicine really promoted a lot of Wallapini greenhouses is what they call Is that what it's called, Wallapini? Oh, right on. Yeah, yeah, Wallapini. And so we actually worked with some people in Colorado that did one, and, and, um, and I know that they have one at their farm and things like that. And so they do work, and they... I'm kind of on the fence because on one hand they don't work 365, you know, 24 seven type of thing for what people are trying to achieve, but they do provide some of the stuff we you're talking about as far as cooling and heating on the thermal level. But, um, depending on where you are, that can be really tricky to quantify that all the time. And what I mean by the desert is really unforgiving and you'd have to dig a pretty deep hole, um, to get any of that relief or help from those things um in you know in in grass valley for that matter where i am up here it gets really cold in the winter time and people have tried some of these techniques and and using warm water barrels and things in the daytime to you know try to offset some or give off some heat in at night and those a lot of those times they didn't work because it's just too hot or it's just too dang cold and you know those things help maybe in the evening time or in the morning time but like i said it's not a consistent enough situation and i believe in the deserts um you can grow in a combination of things and i've been to the few desert greenhouses already um one of them was in death valley of all places it was like 70,000 square feet and <laughs> i happened to be in vegas consulting on an indoor project that wanted to get a greenhouse and so through Instagram, a buddy of mine that I didn't even realize was out in Death Valley running a big greenhouse. So we packed up, headed out there. And, you know, with the wet wall going on a hot day on 112, it had it down into the 70s or high 70s, which felt really nice and was working well. But again, like you said, it costs money to run those systems and to make all that happen. The one thing that he did mention is that, you know, it was getting to be monsoon season and off the coast. Um, we've been having a lot of high pressure or whatever systems and causing it to be really humid. And so when it gets really humid, um, out in the desert or even close to San Diego, where I went to another one, those wet walls are tricky because the humidity is really hard to deal with. And so, you know, we kind of have, like I was saying before, we take a few steps forward and a few steps back. And so, yeah, in the desert, model of a greenhouse we have to have more flexibility of things to turn off and on and to do and so i thought they had too clear of a cover i would have used a more diffuse cover another place that i went to says well we like to clear and we'll just pull out the shade cloth well if you don't pull out the shade cloth soon enough you end up getting high leaf surface temperatures and then you're actually closing the shade cloth and and retaining that humidity um, because the plants have already overheated and started to sweat and so if you don't catch it at the right time um, you still kind of deal with the same problem that you were hoping to avoid with some of this fancy stuff so um, it's a lot of orchestration that goes along with it too it's not just how you do the greenhouse and what you put on it it's the orchestration and how you set it up to operate and the parameters so that you can 
you know, utilize shade cloths properly, um, utilize lighting, cooling, wet walls, and passive ventilation when it's time. So, I mean, all these things work well and can lower your cost of production. But like you said, or like you're hearing, people will just do one thing and, you know, they want the cooling, they run the wet wall all the time, that's it. They didn't get a ridge vent or a passive ventilation option or anything like that. Um, they maybe didn't use a diffuse cover or whatever the case may be, you know, I find that nobody does anything the same either. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely not a solid set of best practices that is universally shared. And I got to tell you, it's kind of surprising too to get to this point. You know, it's not like greenhouses are a new thing, but yet there are so there's so much going on as far as new thoughts, new deployments, new implementations, new tech. Now that uh, now that the greenhouse world has got so much more of us cannabis fools running around inventing things and getting involved. Hey, let's go ahead and take our second and last short break. We'll be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. My guest today is cannabis greenhouse expert Eric Brandstad from Greenhouse Advisory Group. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you do have, but you certainly don't have the time for it, and you're not really ready to hire someone full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility. But that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals in Humboldt County at MoontimeMedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean that they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on four projects now for various clients, and every single time they have done more than they've promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making you a pretty logo. Similarly, every single friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me. That just doesn't happen every day. Grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click on the link in our newsletter. Blunt Branding, marketing that makes you money. Skinny dipping, humpback whales. Beatnik Poetry, The Ottoman Empire, Soil Remediation, Interdimensional Beings, and Tree Frogs. These are just a few of the interesting topics you can find in the audiobooks library at audible.com. 
If you like podcasts like Shaping Fire, chances are that you'll dig audiobooks too. Just like with podcasts, audiobooks speak to you, telling you stories and teaching you stuff. Here's the thing. Audible.com has an offer I want to tell you about. Right now, they're offering a trial of their audiobook service for absolutely free. You can go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible and you will get a free audiobook straight up. You can listen to it on your mobile device, computer, or you can download it and listen to it like anywhere. It's really simple. Of course, they want you to subscribe to their service after the free trial and enjoy their audiobooks forever, but you don't have to. All you have to do to get the free audiobook of your choice is to check out the service for free. So that's the deal. Your first book is free, it's easy to sign up, it's easy to quit, and their online library of free books is pretty incredible. Just check it out. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible to find out more, or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis greenhouse expert Eric Brandstad from Greenhouse Advisory Group. So we have talked about a whole bunch of stuff that can go wrong, Eric. You know, we've talked about the heat and the pests and the mold and inadequate sizes and crazy location-based issues, which generally tend to be heat-based. Well, a lot of people, I'm sure, are feeling overwhelmed, which is exactly why, you know, you've started this this new approach of greenhouse rescue. So so let's take it all the way back to the beginning. If somebody is looking to build a greenhouse, what should they be looking for when shopping for a company? You know, that's a good question, and it can be kind of a tough question sometimes because a lot of the people are trying to sell stuff, and they want to get your business, so they're going to say a lot of the right things. You know, if you say, are you guys involved in cannabis, they'll probably say yes. So, you know, just dig a little deeper, you know, like, can I see the cannabis project? Can I see videos, pictures? Can I talk to maybe the person that bought the greenhouse? You know what I mean? Like, dig deep for references um, is what I like to do so that you can really kind of vet it out and make sure that on one hand they have been successful greenhouse grows. I mean, if you can talk to builders even, um, you know, talking to the builders to find out uh, information on, you know, the greenhouse itself on how that's going to go. I mean, I've had a lot of builders that build any greenhouse and they are, you know, they have their own um, ideas of who's better or who's not. So, I mean, a lot of times it's just getting the education background. Don't just pick one. It's good to get at least three quotes in my opinion, or three bids to find out the differences because there's engineering timelines that are different with everybody needing to get building permits these days. Um, and everybody's also in a hurry to get their project going engineering timelines and how soon you can get those blueprints to the county so that you can apply for your permit can be a deal maker or breaker. Uh, the timeline that it takes from pulling the trigger on the actual greenhouse to being able to get the metal, how long is it going to take to you know get it built? There's a lot of these factors, and when you talk to three different greenhouse companies, you're going to get three different answers to all those questions, basically. And depending on where you are at your greenhouse project, one or two of those differences is going to help you make that decision. It's not all just price these days. Um, and it shouldn't be a lot of people bottom line shop. They just look at that bottom line and go that direction. And I feel like that's what gets people in the most trouble. I'm not saying spending more is better, but I'm saying paying attention to all these things, um, is more important than bottom line shopping because what's the point of 
buying a fairly inexpensive piece of equipment and not being there for another year or something. Yeah, totally. And I actually, I'll take the extra step and, and, and suggest people call somebody like you, right? Uh, and actually, you're the only person I know who's doing this right now for cannabis. Some, somebody <laughs> who's a greenhouse strategist, right? Like, they're not trying to sell you a product because, you know, you used to be that guy, right? You used to sell greenhouses. Yeah. But, but, but over your 10 plus years of experience, you've realized what the score is on, on everybody. And and somebody mm-hmm. like you is a pretty smart first call because the money that I would save in calling you to give me some direction and just, you know, business reconnaissance is going to be saved many times over, you know, when I actually go to build or, or rescue a greenhouse. So, so people should do that as well. So, so they're going to look for a greenhouse company with, 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 with serious, um, references that can be checked up. They might consider reaching out to somebody like you who's got a, a bigger perspective and isn't allied to any brand or product. But in the end, they get something built and and then the company hands you the keys, right? And I have heard you talk about this at length about, you know, somebody gets a greenhouse and they don't know what to do with it, right? They don't know how to, they don't know how to make it function, to make it sing. And so, you know, when when you are helping somebody, you know, mentally and emotionally move into their greenhouse, right? Because this is a big stage in a company's overall arc. What kind of uh, hints do you give them for like getting a, a greenhouse up and running? I'm sure that you've got some some initial best practices that you give your clients so that they get off on the right foot. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, one of the things I try to say is even start out small inside the greenhouse. I mean, just because you have a a giant greenhouse or even a whatever size greenhouse. I mean, you don't have to necessarily fill the whole thing up or, you know, start out of the gate at full capacity. It's good to start out with a small workflow practice and uh, start to ramp up. You can ramp up fairly quickly, but um, I see people going in head first sometimes right off the bat and that can be actually too big of a pill to swallow because some of the things that we set up or design or workflow things, you know, they need some tweaking. They aren't going to be set in stone and perfect right off the bat. And uh, within those adjustments, we find better efficiencies and, you know, weed out some of the things that won't work in the long run uh, before we go head first. So uh, I would think that a lot of these best best practices, you know, how to use the machinery, right? But but and, and you know, especially for if something if they're paying for the mechanization. But I would also think that there are a lot of things as far as like more than workflow, like the steps that the employees take around the space. Um, I'm sure that those are somehow more unique or or differently unique for greenhouses than they are, for example, an indoor warehouse grow. They are, but I take a lot of information or what I've seen from indoor grows now and try to apply them to the greenhouses. And what I mean by that is the workflow um, of of being uh, clean. You know, a lot of people I see in their greenhouses will go from the flowering plants that might have vectors going on and who knows – um, or actually have, have problems that you can visually see, you know, go around those plants, touch them, talk about them, this, that, and the other. And then we go over and let's look at the moms and the baby, the cuttings. And so a lot of people need to understand that there is cross-contamination going. And even when we're harvesting, we're taking trays of 
harvested plants uh, past you know the cloning room or something like that. I see a lot of people passing passing each other in the halls where we actually have to establish a workflow that means the clean you know the the veg and the cutting people stay with those plants and before you move over to the flowering or vice versa we actually change our clothes and go through a procedure of cleaning and decontamination uh and maybe we have two different crews you know we have a veg and cloning crew and the flowering crew is over here and they do their thing and we don't actually cross each other in the halls or pathways when we're hauling trays of clones and another person has a rack of harvested plants i mean i see that really all too often and uh, the other thing that i see that's happening is a landscape plan uh, in the sense that it's easy to build the greenhouse and make that all dialed in and a sweet space but then we have dusty driveways and dust surrounding everything and so every time someone drives a golf cart by every time a visitor or an inspector pulls up Every time a worker walks by or the dogs are, you know, doing their playing right there, we're creating all this dust. And unfortunately, that dust is getting everywhere on the plants and creating its own set of problems, too. So, I mean, a lot of the best practices I see have to go into with cleanliness. And I don't mean like white glove tech, but we got to put wrap our heads around some of this stuff. I feel like it's kind of basic from my perspective, like landscape dust control and you know not carrying clones past flowering plants or harvested plants is just like a no-brainer but it's just everybody's doing it you know i've talked to quite a few greenhouse folks this year who were really concerned about either their new greenhouse that was you know still had the new car smell on it or or their rehabbed greenhouse around the wildfires that we've been having so hardcore the last two years. I mean, everywhere, right? Down near where you are in Grass Valley was terrible. It's crazy up in uh, Canada right now where I am in the Northwest. We've got fires in Oregon and Washington. Um, are there any best practices for greenhouses when there's a wildfire nearby? You know, I mean... It's tough. I mean, we're still dealing with air exchanges and opening vents and things like that. Smoke gets into our homes. We try to keep the smoke out, but depending on the level of smoke, a lot of people don't have air conditioning in their homes, so they rely on opening windows to you know, to live in their homes throughout the summertime. And so smoke is definitely a hot topic, but it's something that, you know, I don't even really have a big answer on that right now. It's it's mostly you know, trying to go in and be able to spray your plants off. I mean, spraying them with water alone when they're in veg to try to rinse any particulate off, things like that be an option. But at the end of the day, I'm starting to look to the labs to see what they say about the level of contamination on these plants to try to get an idea of where we're at. Like, you know, if it's smoky, how smoky does it have to be to actually affect your plants or how long does it have to sit there for, for it actually to be a problem and things like that. And so, you know, that's a little bit new territory that I'm looking into and asking the same questions about. Um, and so hopefully I'll have some more solid answers as we go. But right now, yeah, it's a scary, scary situation. Right on. So my last question for you today, uh, we're going to go back to the ultra basics. You know, I know that you have been doing light depth way for a long time and, you know, all the way back to where people were using refrigerator boxes around one plant 
in uh, in Humboldt and stuff. And, you know, this is the time of year where people are putting away their depth tarps and people will be soon putting away their, um, you know, their, their, their reg seed tarps, you know, their full, their full season uh, greenhouse polys. Uh, anyway, you know, people are going to be putting this stuff <laughs> away <laughs> and, and you've deal, dealt with these materials for, you know, your whole life. How do you recommend that people, uh, uh, get, you know, put these things away, clean them and put them away for the year. Because I've seen everything from people wash them down and put them away and they mold. And then other people just take them and they roll them up and they, and they just go buy a new one next year. So, you know, as somebody who's been around this since it, it is seasonally correct. Uh, do you have any pointers for folks? Yeah. The main thing is, is, uh, yeah, roll it up and put it away. And I wouldn't worry too much about washing it off before you put it away because yeah, if you don't dry it really good and get everything dry, you end up getting some mold because water's trapped for the winter in those folds. And so having a dry, dusty tarp folded up isn't a big deal. You can rinse it off in the spring when you get it out again and, and clean it off then when you get it hanging up. Maybe even before you have plants in the greenhouse type of thing, it's easy to hose it inside and outside and and things stay dry. But rolling it up and putting it away in a place that isn't going to get hit with mice or rats because one thing that happens to poly that's rolled up and put in the garage is we find mice that go bore a hole in these things. And so then when you go unroll it or unfold it, we have a little hole every five feet, you know, the whole you know, three quarters of the length of the greenhouse. So, um, put, putting things away and knowing that they're going to be secured from animals, pine cones, you know, damaging elements and things like that is, is really important because, uh, I store mine or I used to store mine every year and, and the mice would be, always be my biggest threat, um, for that. And then when it comes to all the other equipment, I mean, the greenhouses are made for wintertime, so most everything as far as fans and bearings and all that stuff are sealed and pre-packed. Um, if it's a hoop house, I always recommend, and you're only using it in the summertime for the most part or the spring and the summer, is take the cover off for the wintertime because if if we get a snow that pops up, it easily collapses hoop houses, even if they um, say that they can handle some snow they really shouldn't um and have a tough time because most hoop houses are all hoop houses have a little bit of a flat spot at the top it's hard to see with the naked eye but it's there and when you have that flat spot and you have snow building up on it it can sneak up on you really quick and uh it's no fun having a greenhouse collapse on you when all you had to do was really take the skin off for the winter time and let it snow and and there wouldn't have been a problem so uh, winterizing your greenhouses is definitely very important for those that don't use it. And so we want to protect the cover and protect the frame at all costs. And makes it less likely that you will need a greenhouse rescue. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. Right on. Well, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. You know, uh, you've got this, this, uh, you know, decade plus amount of experience and somehow we have to distill it down for, you know, a, a 90 minute show somehow. And um, and and I and I think we were able to get you know enough of the problems and enough of the solutions out there to get people thinking about it and and to get them on the road to uh, road to recovery. 
I hope so. It's always fun hanging with you. Right on, brother. I'll see you soon. If you want to connect with Eric Brandstad, you can follow him on his Instagram. That's really interesting at Light Depth Greenhouse. And that's a light underscore Depp underscore Greenhouse. Uh, if you want to email Eric, either with questions or if you want to you know, talk about hiring him as a consultant or a strategist, uh, you can reach him at eric at jasminefarms.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.